Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Um, Today, we continue our collaboration with the American Society of Transplant Surgeons, and today have Satish Nadig. Uh, Satish is a transplant surgeon in Charleston, South Carolina, and is currently an associate professor of surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. He went to undergrad at Washington University and completed his medical degree at the Medical University of South Carolina. He uh, did his general surgery residency training at Harvard at Beth- through Beth Israel Deaconess and did his PhD at Oxford. Uh, He went on from general surgery residency to do his transplant surgery fellowship at the University of Michigan. Satish, we're honored and and privileged to have you have you on the program today. Thanks for having me, Cutler. So so um, Satish, tell us about your job in transplant surgery and what you do in transplant surgery. Well, it's the best job in the world. Um, I actually balance. I do adult and pediatric multi-organ transplant. Um, So I do liver, kidney transplants, and pancreas transplants uh, for adults, um, as well as liver and kidney transplants for children. I also do a a smattering of dialysis access for adults and um, primarily dialysis access for children as well. Um, And then in the midst of all that, I have a basic science lab that um, we're able to uh, do some basic science research to see if we can't change the paradigm of, uh, you know, the current standard of care for transplant. So that sort of encapsulates... um, generally what I do uh, on a day-to-day basis. And then how many partners do you work with? How many are in your group? So I have five other partners in our group, um, and uh, some of them focus more on the liver, some of them focus more on the kidney, um, and I cross over and I I do both um, with a special interest in children. Transplant Mm -hmm. surgery is a busy job. How do you balance the basic science research? What is the percentage that you're spending time with your research and percent clinical yeah, you know, I always find that a tough question to answer because in surgery, especially transplant, so unpredictable. So um, often when uh, you have a week and you can break it up into these two days, I'm going to do this and these two days I'm going to do that. And the other day I'm going to do, you know, admin or something like that. Um, it's uh, it's a lot easier, but that doesn't really work in surgery, nor does it work in transplant. So you really have to try to uh, surround yourself with good people um, and then um try to protect your time when it's um, absolutely essential to be protected. So for example, prior to a grant being written, I'm gonna be spending more time doing uh, laboratory-based, academic-based stuff. Before a uh, paper's uh, due, uh, I'll be focusing more on the academics. However, when um, organs become available or uh, you know I'm on call or it's, uh, it's a busy week, then you have to Um, readjust and you're more clinical. So it's a really fluid thing. And so oftentimes it's not uncommon for me to actually uh, round finished cases and in between cases, go over to the lab, check in with my fellows and my postdocs and the scientists in the lab, and then come back to the clinic and go back and forth like that. And it's it's key that my basic science lab is in proximity to my, my clinical world. Um, the other thing is that I have a, a basic science partner that helps run the basic science lab on a day-to-day basis. And I think in this day and age, it's uh, essential that uh, we're able to do that because of all the very many hats that we wear that go beyond just the clinical and the basic science. Um, because I'm also the associate vice chair of the department for research and and run the, um, the uh, clean cell facility here. And then I'm an overall scientific director of the Transplant Research Institute. So there's administrative hats that that you have to wear that go beyond taking care of patients and doing the research. Um, so technically, uh, you know, when I had a KO8 award through the NIH, I was 75% protected. Um, and when uh, now I have an R01, which is, gives me 40% protection, but those percentages are really mixed in through your day and um, are and change based on uh, what is essential at the time? Oh, you're truly, truly, truly sounds like you're the triple threat here, right? I mean, you know, doing clinical work, you're doing, um, you're doing basic science, and then obviously in the midst of all this, you're educating. It sounds like from either the clinical work or you know the people that you're working with in the lab. Um, you know, I guess as you reflect back um, as your early career and to kind of where you are now, 
What were some of the things that you really enjoyed about that initial time when you first started working as a, as a surgeon? And then what were some of the struggles that you had over, over the time? Uh, well, you know, I think that um, there's so many phases that someone goes through when they finish their fellowship and get, get into their first faculty position. And uh, the initial thing that, that everybody goes through is the anticipation. Um, you now have just finished, for me, it was 10 years, uh, starting from 2003 to 2013 with my residency, fellowship, and PhD of, of training. And then you, you get your first job and you want to get in there and, um, and do your cases and get your lab running and all of those things. And so uh, the thing I really look forward to is being able to uh, successfully uh, take care of patients. That's your number one thing. You, you, you want to be able to operate independently and make sure that you're sewing a liver in and it's, and it's uh, reperfusing and it's pink and the patient gets better. Um, so that was, that was the thing that you really anticipate the most. Um, the thing that's, that's tough and it's frustrating is that early on, uh, you've got to have um, the eye on the prize and be focused and, and it's really tempting to spread yourself thin. But in, if you really want to be successful uh, with a basic science career as well, you've got to stay focused on that basic science and really be going after those early grants because those early grants are the ones that are going to set you up for your your later uh, sustainability in your career. And so uh, that was that was the piece that was hard, was really trying to get those early grants. Uh, but the motivation that kept you going was the fact that you were doing what you loved and that you trained to do for so many years. Um, and at times, you're, you know, you, re you realize, you know, in your first year of being attending and you finish a transplant, you're like, wow, I really can do this, you know, and, uh, and then eventually you, um, you, it becomes, it becomes part of second nature, really, and then you start transferring that information to the next generation. You've been around the block, you've trained in uh, the Midwest, the Northeast, the South, and now you're practicing in the South. So uh, we're curious if you have any thoughts on differences in practice, uh, regional differences uh, around the country. Wow, that's a really uh, good question and a timely question, um, mainly because access to care and disparities amongst socioeconomic statuses and, and even ethnicities and racial disparities are so prevalent in healthcare right now, but um, even more so in transplantation. Um, everywhere else I trained, there was a much better access to, to getting to the hospital and getting the organ and being able to take care, take your medications and adhere to your medications. Um, in the South, you know, they're, we're the only center in South Carolina and there, there are patients that are coming from pretty far away in South Carolina, it's a big state. Um, that don't have the means to be able to get here, or don't have the transportation, let's say, or don't have five transplant centers around them, for example, like in Boston. Um, and that, that, that presents some very unique challenges. Um, so that's one thing that, that we've really had to adapt to from training other places and coming here. And then the other piece is uh, the medical part, which we're in the hypertension, diabetes, and obesity belt. And so where, whereas we did... Uh, double the number of living donor uh, nephrectomies, so patients that want to donate their kidneys, uh, where I was previously um, in Michigan, we're really trying to build to that number here because there's so many people that medically are not suitable to do that because, um, you know, they're, they want to donate to their loved one who has kidney failure, but they're on a course to get kidney failure themselves based on their own medical background. And so um, there's a lot of education. Uh, there's a lot of cultural differences. Um, access to care uh, and being a single center, single transplant OPO uh, or organ procurement organization um, is is a, a benefit, but also has uh, some significant challenges that that you, I did not face in other places in the country. I think some of those things you mentioned are, are one of the things that is so appealing to me about transplantation is that not only you get involved in medicine, not only do you involved in surgery and it's complex surgery. But there's all these other facets that you don't necessarily come across if you're just doing a colectomy or, you know, a vascular operation or some other surgical operation. And so that is really a um, one of the really cool parts about our field is all these other little differences that we come across that you may not necessarily find in in different different aspects of surgery. So. If we have, you know, if, if, you, if you were to give some advice to a medical student or a general surgery resident that was interested in transplantation, uh, what advice would you give them? 
Um, well, I'd say a couple of things. Um, number one, I would say that they have to have a sense of awe uh, with the field. So to this day, when I let the clamps go and a kidney is reperfused and it's starting to make urine, I think it's awesome. And uh, I think the minute that I start losing that sense of awe is the time I need to step away. The other piece is you really have to love the science behind it. There's just something about transplantation where uh, it's so entrenched in basic science um, from when the first kidney was done and the first transplant was done in 1954 to uh, being able to race against being uh, race against the immune system to try to figure out drugs that trick the immune system to now we're on the what I think is the cusp of the next era of transplant. Um, you, you really have to love the science behind it. I mean, there's not any other field in surgery where you're rounding and you're talking about taking somebody's Foley out and donor-specific antibodies in the same breath. Um, and it, it, that's really, um, I think, just a very unique aspect to our field. Um, and there's a lot of medicine involved. You're thinking about all the differential diagnoses of zebras uh, that are out there that that for us aren't really zebras because they happen when someone's on immunosuppression. So what I would say to a medical student is you've got to have that sense of awe for the field, but really love the science behind it as well. Because yeah, the operations are great, uh, but the science behind it is what drives the operation. So That's great advice. And that leads us very nicely into our clinical vignette where we'll get into some of the science behind transplant. Um, so we've been talking about this kidney recipient who now comes three weeks post-transplant but has a rising creatinine. The ultrasound is normal. There's no vascular problems or ureteral obstruction, but the biopsy shows rejection. What kind of rejection is this? So that would, uh, in the absence of any sort of mechanical problem um, where you have no vascular problem, ureteral obstruction, um, and on a biopsy, if they've shown that it's not uh, calcineurin toxicity, which you can sometimes see on a biopsy with something called isometric vacuolization, um, I would call this acute rejection, especially in that time period, uh, which is uh, a, a T-cell mediated phenomenon. And then of, the, of what are the different types of acute rejection or what, what are the different ways that uh, the body can amount a response against the kidney? Well, well, acute rejection in and of itself is, a, is a, like I said, a cell-mediated phenomenon, and typically um, it occurs in this day and age with um, a memory T-cell population. So when we uh, give the induction immunosuppression, the early immunosuppression, it actually spares your memory T-cells. And so we're pretty good at dampening down the acute rejection response. But when you people do get it, they get it because the memory T-cells are still circulating or really attacking that organ. But there are two major types of rejection, there's cell-mediated and um, an antibody-mediated rejection. And antibody-mediated rejection is, um, as per its name, it facilitated by um, donor-specific antibodies that develop or that people already have uh, to the organs. And what happens is these antibodies um, really attack the endothelium, most, mostly in the uh, organ's vasculature, and then it starts to fix complement. So what you see on that biopsy is complement split products, specifically something called C4D, uh, which isn't the greatest marker, honestly. There's there's a lot of a lot of work to try to figure out how we can detect antibody media rejection better. But what we have right now is the staining for C4D or these complement split products, and it breaks down that endothelial cell barrier and it allows that endothelium to be leaky and the organ to become um, uh, infiltrated with macrophages and uh, NK cells, etc. Um, and so it, it, when they manifest, a lot of patients manifest with proteinuria. So for example, the lining of the basement membrane of the glomeruli is a heparin sulfate layer, which is negatively charged. The most common and largest protein in your body is albumin, also negatively charged and large. And so that acts as a filter, the negative to negative repels and the uh, lining of the heparin sulfate of the glomeruli keeps it from getting through. But when you have these sort of rejection episodes, you break down that heparin sulfate layer and you lose its charge and it becomes porous. And so the albumin slips through and then that's what it manifests in proteinuria. Um, that's one symptom or manifestation of it. There are others, uh, but those are the two major types of rejection, cell-mediated and body-mediated. By the way, that's also the, what I described was, is also the pathophysiology of, uh, of nephritic syndrome or inflammatory diseases of the, of the nephrons. And so we use immunosuppressive drugs to uh, kind of prevent rejection. And um, 
one of the banes of our general surgery absite studying is memorizing these uh, immunosuppressive medications and their toxicities and mechanisms of action. Um, so specifically for kidney transplant, what are the uh, four main categories of drugs and can you give us that clinical perspective on how to think about them and remember um, what they do and what their toxicities are? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so there's a very easy way to remember it. Um, every day in your body, first of all, the immune system was developed not for transplantation. It was developed to fight off infections. So every day in your body, antigen-presenting cells are presenting proteins. Um, usually they're yourself, and T cells are looking at them, and they say, oh, I recognize you, but I'm not going to activate, and they move on, and that's a very um, weak bond. When it does present an antigen that's foreign, and it was meant to be viral proteins, it activates the T cell. And what happens is that T cell receptor on the T cell side connects with the MHC from the antigen presenting cell. And then these co-stimulation molecules on the periphery of each organ jump on their lipid rafts and they go to the immunologic synapse. And that then stabilizes the, conne the connection between the T cell receptor and the, and the MHC. And then that activates the T cell. Now that can happen in transplant when it's not a viral protein, but the foreign organs protein itself. And what happens then is you get signal one, which is the T cell receptor and MHC firing. Signal two, the co-stimulation fires, and that fires through the calcineurin pathway, and it, it, it activates these factors called the nuclear factor of activation and transcription that goes down to the DNA, translates and transcribes proteins like IL-2. Then IL-2 used to be called T cell growth factor, it then goes and sits on itself and sits on other T cells and allows them to grow by firing through the mTOR complex, which then fires through the cell cycle to allow the cell cycle to progress, and the T cell activates and grows and, 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 and uh, multiplies. And that's T cell activation. So now if you think about that as the framework in the context, the, you can start to figure out where these immunosuppressants work. So the big categories are steroids. Steroids are very broad, knock down the interleukins, so some that like that IL-2, and just dampen everything down. So uh, the steroids, uh, like I said, are, are the broad broadest category, knock down the interleukins, um, but they can cause diabetes and weight gain and uh, all the things that you know, avascular necrosis, um, the moon facies. Uh, we see that a lot in our, our children. Um, then you have that after when when I said signal two in the co-stimulation, um, that fires through the calcineurin pathway, you can inhibit that. So that's calcineurin inhibitors. That's like cyclosporin and tacrolimus, which basically revolutionized transplant because we were able to get better outcomes. But they're also um, toxic to the organs that they're they are trying to protect. They're toxic to kidneys. So tacrolimus binds the FK binding protein. Cyclosporin binds the cyclophilin protein. Um, and inhibits these genes for these cytokines that I talked about, the synthesis of those cytokines. Um, like I said, they're nephrotoxic. They cause uh, high uh, potassiums. They're also neurotoxic. Someone comes in with tremors after a transplant, probably the tacrolimus. Um, and then, as I mentioned, the cell cycle starts to progress. So our last mainstay therapy is um, anti-proliferative uh, drugs uh, like mycophenolate or myfortic, so mycophenolate mofetil or, or myfortic. And that inhibits the purine synthesis of the cell cycle to keep it from progressing. And that can cause, as you can imagine, leukopenia or GI distress. An older one is imuran or azathioprine, also inhibits uh, de novo purine synthesis and inhibiting the T cell progression. Again, myelosuppression and pancytopenia. Uh, one of the ones we don't use in the perioperative period very often is the mTOR inhibitors, where we inhibit that mTOR that is the, the molecule just before the cell cycle in that pathway I was talking about. And um, the main one is uh, rapamycin serolimus. Rapamycin was discovered from the streptomycin species on Easter Island, and they used to call Easter Island Rapanui, so it's called rapamycin. And um, that inhibits that mTOR complex and keeps the T cell from activating. We don't use it mostly because wound healing, if you're gonna be asked about something, it's gonna be wound healing. It causes a lot of other metabolic derangements, but wound healing is the thing that uh, uh, causes uh, the main problem for um, for uh, rapamycin, and if someone's gonna do a kidney transplant, you're gonna have to make a wound, make an incision, and make a uh, incise through the fascia, and it, it doesn't heal as well. So you don't fix hernias or other sort of uh, surgical procedures on rapamycin, you wanna switch that out first. 
Um, so those are the main categories, steroids or prednisone, calcineurin inhibitors, antiproliferatives, uh, and mTOR inhibitors. There are, there are others that fit into that pathway, but if you think about it, of the antigen cell and the T cell uh, interaction, then you'll know where these things work and, and, um, and can really picture that in your mind. Satish, wow, that was really clear. That was actually a nice really transition kind of review for me, actually, I sad to say. Um, but so you obviously studied this stuff a lot and know about it. Is this what your is this what your uh, basic science research in is immunology and these kind of things? Yeah, actually, I did a little bit of a body swerve after I, um, I did my PhD and I got into immunoengineering. So in that very first era where Joe Murray did the first kidney transplant, eventually went on to win the Nobel Prize. Um, they, they weren't able to repeat as many successful transplants because there was no immunosuppression. And the very first kidney transplant that was done was between identical twins. Um, but then they went on to develop immunos immunosuppression between the 1950s and 1970s and 80s, some of the same ones we use today. That's called the era of immunosuppression, let's say. Um, I wrote a textbook called Technological Advances in Organ Transplantation that kind of goes through some of these eras. But in the 1980s, uh, once we were able to immunosuppress people, we needed to get make the field grow. And so we had to send organs places. So we developed a preservation solution or preservation solutions to be able to do that. And those are some of the same ones we use today. And uh, that I call the era of preservation. Then we got better at the operation in the 1990s, which wasn't that long ago. And we started doing things laparoscopically with minimally invasive techniques, et cetera, splitting livers, for example, for small infants. And I call that the era of technique. But then everything stopped. We still use the same techniques. We still use the same immunosuppression. We still use the same preservation. And I think with, we are sitting on the next era of transplant with the newer technologies we have, like nanotherapy and 3D bioprinting and artificial tissue development. I was fortunate enough to give a TED talk on this in, a few years ago. Um, and I think we're on the era, the cusp of the era of technology. So knowing that I was, I was very interested in this next era, I sort of worked on some of the the, um, the concepts of immunology that I did my PhD on. And um, one of the, the things that I was really working on is the great immunologic effects of rapamycin, but we couldn't really use it for all the things we talked about before. Um, but I would really love to use rapamycin in a, in a transplant setting. So what I did was I invented this nanoparticle. I, I developed this nanoparticle that has rapamycin on the inside of it. And then I targeted it to the endothelium and I was able to use one-tenth of the dose and I put a fluorophore on it so I could track it, and I added it to preservation solution. So I augmented the preservation solution. So now if I take a kidney from California, let's say, and it gets into a plane and goes onto a solution, travels across country, I take it out of the box, I, I transplant it, and then I start the patient on immunosuppression. And, I, and all of that ischemia reperfusion injury is already hit, so that early endothelial problems that we talked about before happen right away. Um, and that sets the organ up for failure in the long term. What I did was create this preservation solution in this, in this nanotechnology augmented preservation solution so that the organ can pick up the immunosuppression beforehand. So we're not behind the eight ball. So we pre-treat and preserve prior to transplant. And what we found is that in, in vitro, it works well. In vivo, in the small animal models we did, it works and it's published. And now we're lucky to say that we're in large animal pig kidneys um, using hu human tissues as well with discarded human kidneys. I've uh, just received a patent on it and NIH funding and, um, you know, look forward to some clinical trials maybe soon if these pigs work out. Um, and that would really be paradigm shifting because if we can pre-treat these organs prior to transplantation, um, we can potentially get people off of anti-rejection medications. But let's say we can't and we just minimize it, then that's a win as well. So my lab focus was on many different things, but um, that was one aspect of what we focus on, which is the immunoengineering of um immunosuppressants, organs, preservation solution to get people off of transplant, uh, off of anti-rejection medications and keep organs lasting longer. That's really cool. And we're looking forward to hearing the results of your uh, larger animal models. So with that said, um, that, that would be a great advance in kidney transplantation. Um, but with advances we've already had, what is currently the overall state of survival for kidney transplant recipients? And um, is there a difference between living donors versus deceased donors? Yeah, so there, there is. There is a difference. Um, and there's, we typically uh, report these on one in five year uh, results and graft and patients. So for example, the one unadjusted survival of organs at one year uh, in deceased donors is uh, about 90%, 90 to 93%. 
um, and the five-year unadjusted grass revivals uh, in the 70s, so 72% or so uh, for primary kidney recipients, um, uh, not so not retransplant. So people have just received a kidney, for example, at five years from a deceased donor. The corollary in the living donor side at one year is about 97% and five years about 85%. Um, that's graft survival. Now, patient survival is slightly different. So patient survival um, for deceased donors at one year is about 97% and for five years about 86%. Um, and for living donors, one year 98% or 99% or so, five years 93%. Um, these percentages are fantastic, and I'll tell you, are way better than someone staying on dialysis, which has not only health uh, impacts, um, but it also has socioeconomic impacts and financial impacts for not only the patient, but also for the, the status of the country as well, for healthcare in the country. So when, so when patients lose their kidney, what's the, what's the most reason that they lose their kidney transplant? So unfortunately, the rates of acute Fortunately, the rates of acute rejection are much lower than they were before. We were pretty good at the early stage. But unfortunately, uh, the, gra the rate of graft loss in the long term is the same as it has been in the 1960s, and that's due to chronic rejection. We just cannot get organs lasting forever, and that's what a lot of people, including myself, are working on in the lab. Um, people lose their organs long term. Uh, to many things. Some of it is uh, the side effects of the medications that they're, they're taking. Uh, chronic rejection is the number one cause. Um, infections are also up there. Uh, th those are the main reasons that people lose their organs as an adult. Interestingly, in the adolescent, because I do pediatrics, um, I'm sort of conscious about this as well, but in the adolescent population, uh, one of the number one causes of, or the top causes of graft loss is non-adherence or non-compliance of their medication. Hopefully we can improve upon that because non-compliance should not be a, a reason um, if we can help with societal needs. Um, but Satish, thank you so much for joining us today. This was extremely educational. We really appreciate all of your thoughts and we hope that you have convinced more people to go into transplant surgery. Absolutely, it's always my goal. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS, Behind the Knife in Transplant Surgery um, collaboration. And today in conversation, we have Dr. Daniela Ladner. She's the Associate Professor of Surgery in Transplant um, Surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. She received her medical uh, education from University of Zurich was then a resident and a fellow in transplant surgery at Stanford University Hospital. She also obtained her MPH from Harvard School of Public Health, is R01 funded, and is the director of Northwestern University Transplant Outcomes Research Collaborative. Thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Knife, Dr. Ladner. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. For this session, we in particular, we would like to focus on post-op transplant patient. So to set the scene and a case for this conversation, we're gonna presume that we have a liver patient who is now one year post-transplant. He, he comes to you after developing some diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. He also recently was treated for a rejection with a steroid uh, with a steroid recycle. What are some of the things that should be on our on our mind for the differential when we are dealing with a patient um, like this? Yes, this is a very typical presentation, actually, uh, a year out, uh, depending um, at which center these patients are taking care of by transplant surgeons or hepatologists. And so this is definitely some, something and the kind of patients uh, people will come across. One of the things you mentioned, um, this patient has diarrhea. The first thing always that comes to mind and that really worries me is, uh, is CMV. Um, it's not the most frequent, but amongst these things, probably one of the uh, most dangerous things. And it usually takes a little bit till the results come back. So every patient that has any kind of uh, diarrhea um, 
I make sure that people send off the CMV. Obviously, just general infectious workup C diff, especially if the patient recently had uh, antibiotic treatment and then the patient just got steroids. So any infectious uh, problem is much more likely in this setting. Uh, a regular infectious workup would in, uh, include, amongst other things, C. diff norovirus, depending on the time of year, is fairly frequent and can present with these uh, signs, uh, and then less frequently, cryptococcus or other other infections. Um, sometimes, uh, and, and I'm, I'm putting forward the infectious part first because these things have to be addressed and treated. Um, and obviously, there's other differentials that um, are more once you've ruled out the infectious causes. Um, the immunosuppression sometimes includes MMS, especially after a rejection period. Usually long-term immunosuppression can be monotherapy on um, calcineurin inhibitor, but uh, if someone had a rejection, they might also be on calcineurin inhibitors plus mycotic, and that can cause GI symptoms. Um, and uh, diverticulosis, just general presentations can also be in the differential. But what I tell my fellows is to always watch out for um, the more dangerous presentations. And if you've seen a patient who's had CMV and seen a patient's die because it was undiagnosed within less than a week, you, you, you get a special kind of respect for that. So, Dr. Leidner, how would you go about diagnosing that, and is there a role for colonoscopy? Well, it depends. So, again, you know, often these patients present, and usually people would send off stool cultures and hydrate, and sometimes everything just kind of resolves by itself. Um, so, when someone comes in in the middle of the night, that is what should happen. They should get all their culture sent, including... Um, just the, uh, the regular panel, including CMV, including then getting hydration. And then usually in the morning, the team comes by, you check on the immunosuppression, you make, you can, uh, actually also for MMS, you can send out levels and so forth. If things don't improve, um, a colonoscopy, I think is, something you need to have a low threshold for in patients who've been on immunosuppression for over a year. Um, see that, for instance, uh, if it doesn't get better with um, medication, uh, I have a very low threshold in getting a colonoscopy. Um, same with CMV. Um, you start medication and then if, uh, again, the symptoms do not improve, uh, a colonoscopy would be something I uh, do very quickly. In general, uh, I, I just have a very low threshold for for that in this patient population, which is very different from a general surgery population where with these symptoms, you, you would very unlikely have to do a colonoscopy. You've mentioned the CMV a little bit. Can you just tell us a little bit more about it and why it's such a big deal for transplant patients? So CMV is something most of us have, right? It just kind of lives amongst us. And in the setting of a of immunosuppression, um, the balance gets shifted towards um, CMV suddenly, rather than just being kind of um, something that lives within our body, something that kind of can take over and tip the balance and um, in fact, if you look at adults, especially sexually active adults, um, almost 100% uh, have CMV. Um, but when CMV uh, becomes infectious in the, in the setting of a immunosuppressed patient, um, you can get extraordinarily sick. You can get uh, pneumonia, pneumonitis, uh, you can get colitis, um, it can present with pancytopenia, uh, leukopenia, and um, 
I have in my 11 years as an attending seen more than one patient die from CMB really quickly. You can kind of get behind them. That is what what should make um, anyone dealing with this somewhat uh, fearful or cautious um, when it gets misdiagnosed or not diagnosed and you get behind the medications don't work fast enough to catch up and uh, people can die from um, uh, respiratory failure on a, on a ventilator. Um, people can also have severe complications from colitis. Um, your regular treatment for these patients is genticlovir, um, but sometimes CMV is resistant and you need to uh, add other agents with carnet. There's some tests that your infectious disease team um, can can do. In general, my suggestion is Trexler is really a team sport. And um, I rely on my uh, partners, infectious disease partners, to help with any kind of um, GI symptoms that don't readily resolve after a couple of days and after kind of the common test are negative and especially if someone has CMV that's something you want to get them involved with. One of the common questions that is always on AppSide is what is the most common post-transplant malignancy? Would you um, like to kind of give us the answer to our audience and also talk to us is there a particular organ transplant that you see this more and have you seen this in your own career? Yeah, so um, really what's most frequent is skin cancer, and people don't really talk about this. Um, and it's, it's really something, especially after liver and kidney transplant, patients live very long thereafter. Sometimes patients are in, on immunosuppression for many decades, depending when they got their transplant. And it really increases the risk of any kind of skin cancer. Um, squamous cell cancer is the most common. So anyone who's on immunosuppression um, should get yearly checks of their skin. Um, in fact, there's, there's not all that much literature long-term, um, but the literature that is out there is suggestive that over... Uh, more than a decade, this will affect almost all patients on immunosuppression. Now, again, squamous cell cancer is not the same in every patient, and usually with surveillance and just remo removing uh, the lesion that can be treated. But it's definitely something to carefully uh, look for, and I think it's very much underestimated. Um, Often this affects patients when they're quite far out from their transplant, so they might not be seeing their um, nephrologist or hepatologist, in this case hepatologist, um, as frequently. Um, so sometimes gets forgotten. To your question, have I seen this? Yes, I have. I actually have seen uh, patients die from that when they did not do the surveillance and that just wasn't on their on their radar. So what I tell patients um, and their families is really to be to be specially aware of uh, this risk to make sure you see somebody um, every year to survey uh, surveillance your skin. Um, and obviously the regular precautions for some. Is this thought to be due to the suppression of the immune system? Is this seen in other patient populations that have immunosuppression? It is, and it's, it's really, immunosuppression um, protects you from rejecting your organ, um, uh, which is a foreign object, but it also just suppresses your ability to fight um, whatever is foreign. Cancers that are become abnormal, cancerous cells that become abnormal, their uh, foreign body, so to speak. And so you fight um, those cells that generate as we speak in our body. Um, they don't fight them as violently. And so that is 
a trade-off for immunosuppression. In the short term, it's usually infection. In the long term, it is uh, cancer, and it so happens that the skin cancer is just the most frequently found. What role do mTOR inhibitors play in uh, preventing skin cancer or causing skin You know, you can um, switch up your immunosuppression. As I said, most patients on uh, who receive a liver transplant initially are on calcineurin inhibitors, sometimes combined um, with MMF. Um, but more and more um, patients also uh, are switched after a year if they're rejection-free to mTOR inhibitors, those are associated with um, less occurrence of um, of renal complications for one, but also of cancer. So we've talked about some of the complications for liver transplant patients about a year out, but what is the long-term survival of a liver transplant recipient at, say, five years, and how does this compare to other surgical um, uh, diseases that people take care of? Um, so five years is about presently is about 60 to 70%, um, which you kind of have to put in perspective of who receives the liver transplant. Liver transplants are allocated based on male score, which in turn is a proxy uh, of a three-month mortality. And um, so it is pretty safe to say that um, if allocated with, within the, the national rules, at the five-year survival of a patient who requires a liver transplant is, is zero. Um, and so a liver transplant, one-year survival nowadays is close to 90% uh, after liver transplant, and five-year survival is uh, between 60 and 70%, depending on the underlying disease. So um, that is that might seem much lower than kidney transplant, which is in the 90s. But um, in terms of the fact that mortality is extraordinarily high in the patients that do this in the first place, um, this is actually a very high number. It's also to be noted that um, the mortality kind of flattens out. Um, mortality is uh, highest, actually, in the first uh, 12 months. Uh, again, mostly due to infection, and then afterwards, kind of peters out, and the the curve becomes flatter. We would now like to switch topics and kind of start uh, just have some personal questions for you. Um, how did you tr- decide on transplant surgery after finishing general surgery residency? Uh, um, I actually didn't decide after transplant after general surgery i um was an intern at stanford and it was my intention to be uh, or become a surgical oncologist um or oncological surgeon and um i did my rotation on transplant surgery in my second or third month of internship and I had not really been exposed to hepatobiliary surgery or, or a liver transplant for sure. And I saw my first liver transplant as an intern. And I thought it was the absolutely coolest thing I had ever seen. And um, it was such an amazing combination of technical finesse and medical complexity that. I simply fell in love with it. I'm like, I, I, I want to be this good a surgeon um, in the future, and I want to be able to take care of these really sick patients. And um, that's, that's when I decided that I wanted to become a transplant surgeon. So now that you're at Northwestern, uh, what do you do in transplant surgery, and, and how does this translate to your day-to-day life? And job. Yeah. So I'm a kidney and liver transplant surgeon and a hepatobiliary surgeon. So I have three kind of clinical areas. In uh, kidney transplants, I 
perform the regular uh, recipients. I also do the living donors. At this point in my career, I actually do primarily the living donor uh, surgeries for, for kidneys. In liver transplant, I do both also disease donor transplants, but also uh, living donor liver transplants. Um, those are particularly um, fascinating. It, again, it requires a large team. We do this in a team of uh, four where we have two attendings doing the recipient and two doing the donors and just a lot of fun. There's a lot of uh, technical complexity there and collaboration that is um, that is really fun. Um, and then hepatobiliary surgery, we also have a team. There's a team of four of us who do this. And um, that kind of encompasses all the clinical work that I do. Um, I wear two other hats. For one, um, as uh, was pointed out, at the a very nice introduction at the beginning, um, I head up our uh, outcomes research group, MoodTorque. So when I was hired uh, 11 years ago, there was not a lot of health service outcomes research performed uh, within the transplant division. And I was asked to build a health service outcomes research group uh, that focuses on transplantation. And um, I got the support to, to do that and reached out across the university. We have a very transdisciplinary group um, of uh, experts that focus on answering transplant-related uh, questions. And then my third hat is as an individual investigator. I'm an R1-funded investigator. In, uh, in presently, uh, my R1 focuses on a clinical trial in medication adherence. Um, process improvement has been something that I've been interested in since the beginning. And uh, my first R01 was uh, uh, focused on process improvements in uh, living liver donors. Um, that is uh, my R01 funded work. And I also personally do a fair amount of work in uh, epidemiology of end-stage liver disease patients and um, developing decision support tools in these patients, primarily with the objective to identify those with low male scores um, that are at higher risk for death than their males would um, indicate so they can be targeted for interventions such as living donor liver transplant. Wow, it sounds like you have multiple multiple jobs there. How do you balance your clinical jobs with your research jobs and then even beyond that life um, that maybe doesn't include work outside the hospital? Well, um, <laughs> that's a question I get asked a lot by uh, special medical students who, who wish to go into this field. Um, I, Maybe a little bit of background, and I I also have two kids. They're eight and and twelve. And you know, usually what I what I tell residents and medical students, if you if you really enjoy what you do, um, then that gives you a lot of energy to do more stuff. I actually feel extraordinarily privileged to be able to do fascinating complex surgery and also do um, really interesting research. Um, that is not everybody's cup of tea, but it is for me and it kind of feeds each, uh, each part of me. Um, I, I always say surgery is for my soul and research is for my brain. Um, it allows me to um, it, each of these two things allow me to kind of recuperate from the other. Um, and so to me, that actually creates a balance. Um, the key of it for me is to, to really enjoy what you're doing. And I've done both individually without the other. I've done some research exclusively, especially during my postdoc. 
Um, I've done some clinical work exclusively when we were short-staffed for um, a couple of years. And I just don't like one without the other as much. Um, I see myself primarily as a surgeon if I, if I had to choose, but it's really nice to get kind of this balance. On the, you know, leading and um, creating an environment where other people can do research is just also very refreshing. You get a lot of people who are enthusiastic and um, it's that in itself is energizing, is energizing too. Um, I have learned over the years to also protect my time for my family, my, my kids. Um, do need me and I want to spend time with them and so I've become quite conscious of the time that I'm off and I try not to uh, do work when I'm when I'm home um, especially when my kids are awake I I really focus on them and I spend time with the family and um, I think I think for me, just also having, creating a, um, or maintaining a circle of friends, um, having family time, having particular time with my kids uh, has been really important uh, to, to kind of keep a balance and keep the joy of it. It's also changed over time. I, I think. As we go through life, uh, we have different kind of priorities depending on our circumstances. And just being open to that, I think, is very important. And kind of listening to your own needs and adjusting things if you feel you work too much or um, uh, you don't have enough time for, for certain things that are important to you. Um, so for me, it's kind of been a annual assessment of how I'd like my life to be. And, uh, to be quite honest, an, an annual assessment of what would happen if I were to, this might sound morbid, but what would happen if I died in a year from now and would look back on my life, would I wish I had done things differently. And if the answer to that is yes, then I make adjustments. Um, and if the answer is no, then I don't. Well, Dr. Dr. Ladner, those were amazing pieces of information, both for clinical uh, management of these patients, as well as uh, giving us your, um, some answering those personal questions and giving us your feedback on um, how to make a uh, work-life balance with and be a transplant surgeon. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Until next time, dominate the day.